0: Welcome to What's Left to Do. I'm your host, Janelle. If there's one thing about your dear host, it's that she's extremely persistent. As in, I chased down this week's guest for nearly two years to be able to interview him. (laughs) Uh, I initially met Greg briefly during Bernie's 2020 primary run. One pandemic and a general election later, and now he's running for office. I get his story on the record. What got him here and the legacy of progress he hopes to be able to show his granddaughter. Aziza, this is for you. with whom we are back with someone that I chased down over the last two years I met the king of the djembe very briefly (laughs) in the Oakland Bernie office and I made a note I said he's got a story he he I don't know if you remember this you remember the uh the documentary crew that was like kind of taking comment from people at the end so like I you know said whatever the hell I said and then you uh then you you know you spoke to it I was like he put that so well, <laughs> I bet he's got a story. Uh, but now that I've chased him down and was relentless and harassing him for an interview, I am sitting with none other than Greg Hodge of the Oakland, California. How are you doing today, Greg?
1: I'm doing great. Um, it's good to be here. Um, good that we finally got a chance to sit and talk. Yeah. Um, true, you chased me down. <laughs> um, but, you know, as a journalist, I think that's part of the endeavor. You know, you have that's to be right. relentless to get to the story.
0: That's it. That's right. And we're about to get into your story. Where did it start? Did it start in Arkansas?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Where did you grow up in Arkansas? Yeah,
1: I grew up in a small town, uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, which ah. is in the southeast uh, corner of the state. It's in the Mississippi Delta. Mm-hmm. It is a, um, the county seat in Jefferson County, which meant that in my parents' and grandparents' generations, it was the place where people would come to pay bills, to shop. To um, take care of business, go to the movie, that sort of thing, because it really serves the outlying rural communities, these little small small towns like Humphrey and England and Gethsemane, otherwise known as Gethsemane. <laughs> um, that, that that it's a it's a place, but it's also um, because of that history, it's it's got a lot of agricultural um the a part of the economy is a lot of agriculture so it mm-hmm. was a soybean huh. area okay. cotton even when you were corn, growing up soybean. when i was growing up oh, okay. uh, not too far from where i grew up in stuttgart arkansas was the headquarters for riceland rice so huh. arkansas grew a lot of rice oh, as, well, as well as cotton and soybeans and these other things okay. but the other thing that's important about my hometown is that it's also the home of the university of arkansas pine bluff Yep. formerly known as Arkansas A, M, and N College, mm-hmm. a historically black college yep. where my parents, um, both my parents um, became the first college-educated folks in our family. Whoa. Uh, so my mom in uh, had her degree in elementary education, uh, ultimately became a principal of an elementary school that was named after her mentor, which is a, a bit of a story in that. Mm-hmm. And my dad, who was from Monroe, Louisiana, who after uh, going to Southern University for a year, then going off to the military when he came back home in the mid fifties came to pine bluff and became a choir director of one of the churches became uh, and was a college student was very active in co- the college choir and mm-hmm. that sort of thing so um but both my parents grew up in that small town many of my parents friends who were teachers and lawyers and uh doctors solidly black middle-class folks mm-hmm. also went to, to university of arkansas pine bluff yep. and um and that that experience had a lot to do culturally with who i am as a person
0: explain to me what you mean by that
1: um because if you like one snapshot of it is that uh if you're a small town kid you're always hoping to go to the big city mm-hmm. you're always hoping but every year at homecoming time. Uh, the big city would come to us. Yep. And so the one thing I know about you as a Howard University alum, you know homecoming on black college campuses is an event. That is a whole
0: thing. It's a whole thing. Mm -hmm.
1: And so every year, um, people would come from Chicago, from New York, Mm -hmm. from the Caribbean. People who had gone to school there, they would come home with their best outfit. Just Just drip drip down. Drip down. (laughs) Would drive up in a really nice car. Now, sometimes it was the car they rented in little rock at That's the right. airport That's and right. thought it was there you got the t-bird style. or whatever but you got the style right <laughs> but there was parties there was the miss uapb um you know fashion pageant. show and mm-hmm. beauty pageant um you had the the battle of the bands mm-hmm. like the best part for most black college homecomings is the halftime because yep. whether and generally when, you're, when they schedule these games, they schedule it against the least likely person to beat you Correct. in football. So you can have a little so, bit of pride. Yeah, so you have a little <laughs> bit of pride, and there's going to be a big blowout yep. of a game by halftime, That's but right. everybody's waiting for the, the marching bands. Yep. So I remember the years when Grambling mm, would come to town, uh-huh. or when Southern University would come to town, or when FAMU every now and then would come, or Prairie View, or Mississippi Valley State, mm-hmm. and the excitement the anticipation of what the show is going to be like at halftime Mm because black marching bands and the drum majors and the majorettes and the dancing girls and all that you know it was always how can we be one up on the other people so that generally somebody's gonna have some big surprise thing that happens at halftime yep and so last time i went to homecoming a few years ago uh, marching bands were doing their thing. And then two things happened, uh, which I thought were great. One was that they incorporated West African djembe drums Hi. into the halftime show. Oh, and I was wow. like,
2: go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And
1: then the second thing was they had some very full-figure sisters mm-hmm. who turned it out. I know they did. They danced. They did flips. This they doing splits. all this stuff. Yep. And the little <laughs> smaller women looking at them like, how you do that? And it was like, they were like, hey, girl, whatever they were doing... To get ready to do all that, they were doing it. But, but more than that, it was the pride. Mm-hmm. It was like we had a homecoming parade every year.
3: Yep. Absolutely. So you had
1: marching bands and people on horses and doing the, you know, all drill teams. But there was something about growing up in a place where the narrative
3: mm.
1: for black people was not some oh woe is me yes like oh uh-huh. lord it was you know no it was like we can excel mm-hmm. and so and, generally, we, and that's the expectation and that's the expectation yeah. and generally every year uh, somebody would come visit us who were my parents friends who had moved away lived in other cities and mm-hmm. so we would hear the dinner conversation about what's happening in Chicago yep what's happening in Kansas City Detroit what's happening in Detroit mm-hmm. you know and so for us it was a bit of a cultural exchange so it was like the big city coming to us ah as opposed to us having to go but it also sparked that interest in well what is what where are these other places uh-huh. and what are these other things um I, I grew up in an environment where until i was in the sixth grade mm-hmm. i went to all black schools yep all black churches yep. and by the way we're a two church family so i had choices on sunday morning oh nice oh yeah what, um, what denominations uh baptist okay. southern baptist okay. i mean choices okay. with the <laughs> like my dad's church or my mom's church that was the choice you had right (laughs) and generally we went to my mom's church Mm -hmm. Highland Missionary Baptist Church where I was in Sunday school and I was one of those kids that was always being pushed to get up and speak and do the summary of the Sunday school lesson and it was a place where all of us got a chance to learn how to be good public speakers that's right you had to do your little Christmas speech your Easter speech your Day speech Mother's Day (laughs) uh, Benevolent Society speech Maryations of the Church (laughs) Week (laughs) BTU you know it Youth was like
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> all of that, right? Yeah. And so for me, it was a very rich environment. In addition to that, things that other Black families might not have been doing. So my mom. Wanted me to be in the Cub Scouts. Well, there was no Cub Scout troop. So Mrs. Bobby Hodge started the Cub Scout troop. Uh, so my mom was the den mother for the Cub Scouts. Yeah. My grandfather taught us woodworking. Uh-huh. You know, we we went to the uh, various events. We, once I got to the Boy Scouts level, we would go to these things called jamborees. Yep. And generally, we were the only black yep. troop. <laughs>
3: That's still and the, the, and and a lot and of the places. thing was, you know
1: love love people love all humanity but we were trying to beat the white boys we was like no no we tie a sheet knot better than you we do canoeing better than you we we run up to the river and back better than you whatever (laughs) it is we gonna do it better than you and there was a certain amount of camaraderie and pride and fellowship and all that that uh i don't think you can really replace that and Mm so across all of these black organizations being around legendary Black leaders in our hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and I say legendary because, or maybe worthy of legend, because some of them, like a man named Mr. Yancey. Mr. Yancey, when I was growing up, I knew him as the man who owned the appliance store mm-hmm. where all of my parents' friends and them, they, they bought the refrigerator for Mr. Yancey. They bought, in part because the white stores didn't cater to you. They didn't care if you had a warranty or whatever, you know, they were like, whatever. Right. Um, But Mr. Yancey, as I learned much later in life, when Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, students came to Pine Bluff to help organize on that campus, mm-hmm. they couldn't find places to live because uh-huh. white folks were not trying to house no. these little black students who were troublemakers, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. like John Lewis, you know, yeah. good troublemakers. Duh. And so uh, Mr. Yancey was the person that found housing for these kids. Oh,
0: wow. Mm-hmm.
1: Other people like uh, Harold Flowers, who was – he was a, a lawyer who worked what they call he was a circuit lawyer. Mm-hmm. So he worked in Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas. He was friends with Thurgood Marshall. Uh. He probably was friends with Constance Baker Motley, who was the first black woman to be a federal court judge. She clerked for uh, for Thurgood Marshall when he was when she was at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of us who were watching the confirmation hearings mm-hmm. for Judge uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson when Senator Cory Booker made a comment, he Mm -hmm. mentioned Constance Baker Mm Motley. And a lot of people didn't know who she was, but she was, she really led, she was the one who created the path for somebody like Judge Brown Jackson, who's going to be our next Supreme Court Justice. Mm -hmm. Harold Flowers was trying cases that were part of the 20-year strategy that charles hamilton houston had created hey at come howard on, university howard. yeah he was a dean of law school at howard he trained a whole generation of lawyers including thurgood marshall and mm-hmm. what they did was they created a strategy around how we got to board brown versus board of education that's right harold flowers was trying cases that were some of those building block cases mm-hmm. he also was important because in 1948 where a black man had been accused of killing a white man, mm-hmm. it was the first time in the American South that black people were on a jury huh. where a white man was was being tried for killing. Where, sorry, a where a black, black man. man was being tried for killing a white man, mm-hmm. right? And so um, the the groundbreaking move was that when Do- when Doctor Flowers, when Lori Flowers, had passed away mm-hmm. in the late nineties, I think it was the local paper republished an article that had appeared at the time. Mm-hmm. And this article was intended at the time in the 1940s was to intimidate mm-hmm. black people. And so they put the pictures mm-hmm. of all of the black people who were in that jury. I Whoa. think it was six people of that 12 person jury mm-hmm. and they put their pictures. Mm-hmm. But what struck me about those pictures was these were business owners. Ah. So it was PK Miller who owned the, one of the mortuaries. Mm-hmm. It was a man who was a shoe shop owner. Mm-hmm. It was all black people whose businesses were catered like that. Black people catered to their business; yeah, they weren't yeah, yeah. dependent on the white community right. for their living. Right. And so Harold Flowers was smart enough to do that. And the last thing I'll say about uh, Harold Flowers is that he was at one point he was threatened by the Ku Klux Klan mm-hmm. for the the legal work that he was doing in the South. Of and, course. Um, and he was he was a brilliant man. He wrote a, a op-ed piece for the local newspaper, and in essence, what he said was. When Smith and Wesson made your gun, they didn't stop making guns. Mm. And from that point on, he had a bodyguard, Ew. and nobody ever bothered.
0: Harold no. Flowers. Guess he some heat again because <laughs> <Ugh. laughs> he was
1: like, "Let me be clear, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, that I'm gonna defend myself right. while I defend you the can Constitution. Too.
0: That's right. And catch
1: one. <laughs> so yeah, so growing up in Pine Bluff, um, you know, we had black parks. My first job was. Can, as you, a- can you
0: can you can you explain to people who who don't who are not in community or related to uh, black elders who came up in a time like you. Can you explain? You said it again. I mean, you said it before, but can you explain what that was like growing up in a black world that was, that was, that was, that was, was um, fully adequate like it, your your needs were met like the, the your, your sense of community wasn't your I'm putting words in your mouth uh, you didn't have some deficient sense of community or being simply because you were not in like close proximity to white people like it was like it was it was a beautiful kind of like insulated and I don't mean that in a pejorative way like black world like yeah. it was yeah
1: oh absolutely you get it right I mean even as you ask the question is it makes me think about Zora Neale Hurston mm. and how Zora, to paraphrase, was like, I'm not some sad and lonely figure. You know, I'm out here sharpening my oyster knife. Yeah, You exactly. know, I'm going to take full advantage yep. of the world. And she grew up in Eatonville, Florida, which is right. all black town. Right. Yeah. So I think people who grow up in that environment have a bit of a, a insight into what black community can be Mm -hmm. which is wasn't it was never perfect but it was it's a place where you can be embraced Ah. it's a place where as a young person hmm, you get the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. like a lot of our young people don't get the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. in other environments if you make a mistake out here in west oakland when authority figures like the police are involved, you don't get a second chance nope. often.
2: Mm-mm.
1: So whatever childish indiscretion, right, bad choice you made, right. in Pine Bluff, you generally were going to get a second chance. That's right. In part because the black community was going to come around you, That's right. was going was gonna to make sure that you had the full opportunity to be a full human being. That's right. You happen to be African-American. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean it happened to be as in you could just been anything. It's just that you were a human being first. Yep. You were African-American second. Yep. And actually, you were probably a child of God first. Yeah, because there the, the... the spiritual religious context mm-hmm. of all that, whether people are subscribed to, you know, Southern Baptist Christianity, what I call Afro Baptist, mm-hmm. you know, because to me, it's part of the same Expression of Christianity as Condomble, yes, santería, Lakumi—all of these New World religions that we had to figure out how we fit into this box, right. often of Catholicism or Protestant Christianity, yep. so that we could actually express ourselves. Yep. We're gonna worship in the way we worship. That's right. We're gonna bring the Holy our gods. Ghost. We're gonna <laughs> bring. We're gonna bring the music with us. Yeah, we're gonna. Yeah. We're gonna bring you know prayer circle with us. We're gonna bring the the mourners bench with us. Yeah, you know, all of these features of that. So. Growing up in a place like that, where you get the benefit it out, you get to explore yourself. You mm-hmm. get to be, you get to, for, for at least from my group. And again, these are middle class black kids. Yeah. My experience is probably a bit different from my working class friends. Although we, the because Chatham of segregation. Was, wasn't wasn't that big. Exactly. Because yeah. we all went to school together. Everybody we went all to church played together. together. You all lived in the same neighborhood. I mean, I, I remember like kids that were really poor. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like dirt poor. Yeah like they're poor like 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 you go in their house and you see the ground between the floorboards Mm. or they had a uh outhouse Mm -hmm. they didn't have an indoor toilet Mm -hmm. and something i've never i don't think i've said this too many times before but but there's a certain smell of poverty yep there's a certain way that if you don't have the the enough resources that there's just something that you you feel and smell and it's visceral. And you sense it. You sense it. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And our parents, my parents, I was blessed enough to have parents who didn't make a distinction around that. Sure. So that poorest kid mm-hmm. could come to our house. That's right. That I could come to his house. That's right. That we understood each other's experiences be a little bit different. And I will say that that, that Cub Scout troop that I talked about is indicative of that because yep. there was middle class kids in that troop and yep. there was working class kids. And, and when I say class, working in middle class, generally black people are one paycheck away from being working hey, class if on. you're middle class. Mm-hmm. It ain't like it's that much You ain't difference. living that large. You ain't living that large. Yeah. Right. And so... But
0: well, hang on, uh, Terry. There for a second. When you say you grew up middle class in that in that time period, describe what you mean versus versus how you perceived maybe as a child or in retrospect as an adult how you perceived that difference between middle class and working class of, in that era because that's and, and very that, different. That's
1: a great question. In that era, is at least two dynamics. Mm-hmm. One is a set of middle class values, mm-hmm. whether you had money or not. Yeah. Like that you you knew that education was going to be your key to success. That's right. You knew that, and I'm going to distinguish schooling from education. Yeah. You knew that you had to do well in school, that, that doing well in formalized education was going to be one thing, but also getting a good community education about mm. how do you talk to elders? Uh-huh. How do you treat young people? Mm-hmm. What's the role of family yeah. in your life? Yeah. One of the things I didn't realize until I came to Oakland in the early 80s, um, and I kept hearing people talking about single, you know, moms leading their families. Mm-hmm. I didn't grow up around anybody mm-hmm. whose dad wasn't in a household. Nah. Now, I don't know what was happening behind closed doors in sure, the households. Sure, sure, they weren't all perfect households. No, I could believe that. Of course. But nobody on my block didn't have a father. Yep.
0: Present. So when
1: I got to Oakland and I started meeting all these brothers that were my age. Yeah. Who didn't have a dad at home mm-hmm. or a dad figure. hmm you know, somebody who identified as male who was going to play that role. Yeah. I I was stunned. Yeah. I was like, what do you mean? And so part of what in, in all the various leadership roles I've played, I've always had this vision in my head of that kind of community, a community that embraces you, a community that allows you to be your biggest self, mm-hmm. a community that exposes you to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that middle class value goes to the middle class definition goes to value, but it also goes to material. Yes. Um, um, affluence. Mm-hmm. We never wanted for anything we needed.
0: Ah, you never came home wondering if you were going to have dinner. You never came home wondering if the lights were going to be off. You no. knew that your basic needs would be met. You're, you're, you probably, this is me editorializing, you probably weren't spoiled in that, like, you could just throw a tantrum and mom would buy ooh, you every toy ooh. you want. Absolutely not. No, of
1: course not. Absolutely not. <laughs> I
0: wish y'all could We should face. be on, on video because
1: that look, I just, yeah, no. I, no.
0: But you never wanted for your <laughs> no. basic needs being Mm-mm. met. Yep. No. Your clothes I mean, were clean. And, and you were I know fed. that there's
1: kids yeah. that I went to school with that didn't get a, didn't get a meal until lunchtime at yeah, school. of course. In the household I grew up in, we had a hot breakfast pretty much every day. Yeah. And we sat down as a family to have breakfast. a so very right. ordered life. Yes. You know, my Absolutely. dad taught piano lessons in the evening. So we didn't have dinner until about six o'clock because after school was over, around three, he'd have a set of four or five students every day that were coming. We got up, me and my two sisters got up in the mornings and practiced piano at six in the morning. Ooh. It was crazy. But it was, but the orderliness of the household mm-hmm. The, the expectations of you mm-hmm. around learning how to work., yep. so we had chores that we had to do all the time.. Yep. My mom being super organized, like mom got a degree, her, her primary degree was in um, reading. She was a reading specialist, but she also had I think she had a minor in home economics. Uh-huh. So that generation, home economics meant you were going to learn how to master the management yes. of the few resources you had. Yes. I to this day, I have a little ledger that my mom would write like every time she got paid Mm -hmm. she would say how much she paid for milk how much she paid for when she still rented Uh before they bought a house Mm -hmm. but it's like this very detailed you know thing and this and in that kind of middle class practice of budgeting Ah. of paying attention where your money goes Uh we knew that we're gonna get new clothes for school and we're gonna get something new at christmas and easter yeah and And we knew that, you know, that was a kind of a privilege. Like everybody wasn't going to get that. Yeah. So there's something about middle class values. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I used to hear my mom say a lot. Um, my mom is a depression was a depression era Ooh. child so Ooh. she grew up in the you know in the came of age in the 30s and 40s mm-hmm. and one of the things that, that I know from talking to people and reading about it and hearing family stories about my grandfather would go out and, and hunt blackbirds mm-hmm. and then if he brought some blackbirds back in he they would maybe borrow some flour from the neighbor next door make some biscuits and then share the, the yeah. meat with them and you know it was that kind of yeah. community yeah. kind of you thing that, that people get along but my my said, like, we we were poor, mm-hmm. but we never knew it. Yeah. Like, they didn't think of poverty as this social stigma. Yeah. It's just that's like, what we just Dick don't Gregory have And ain't nobody else got nothing either. Yeah, that's right. So, and the few people that had a little bit more, mm-hmm. they still lived in the community. Yeah. So, the and, few doctors and we had and pass it around. Pass it around. Yeah. Whenever something bad happens, somebody loses something because they had a fire in their home mm-hmm. or something happens, that generally people are putting together grocery bags and taking it over to yep. Ms. Williams' house. And, that's right. You know, so that middle class uh kind of upbringing definitely influ- has influenced my way of of being and my way of what I want for my own children mm-hmm. what I want for children in this community here in Oakland mm-hmm. like I want them to not I want I want kids to be able to understand that you can be and do anything in the uh, world mm-hmm. like and I and I was raised to believe that I was raised uh-huh. to believe that Like I was thinking at one point I'm going to be the first black president. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be like a fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be all these things. I want archaeologists, all these things I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever said to me, you can't do that.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: You know, nobody ever said like the way Malcolm X's junior high school teacher told him, Oh no, you can't be a lawyer. You should do something with your hands like a carpenter. Nobody ever said that to me. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, if somebody had said that to me and I had told my parents, mm-hmm. oh, they was going to get a lecture. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because in part, again, historically by a college environment, mm-hmm. they we had a, the college president when my whole time I was growing up was a man named uh, Dr. Lawrence Davis. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Davis was affectionately called Prexy, like short for president. So mm-hmm. everybody said what Prexy said mm-hmm. and Prexy said it was like. And I, when I was like, look kid, who is Prexy? <laughs> like I know about Jesus, Dr. King <laughs> and the Kennedys. So who is Prexy? Yeah. Cause Prexy getting a lot of love, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, but Dr. But Dr. Davis became he was one of the youngest college presidents in the country when he became a college president. Mm-hmm. And then, and he's, now he is legendary because there was like at least three or four generations of black kids Who would show up at that school with clothes on their back and a little croaker sack (laughs) Mm -hmm. with some chicken and some biscuits their mama made for them. (laughs) And by not too much else, except they had this belief Mm -hmm. that they could learn, that they could be somebody somewhere. John Johnson, Ebony Magazine went to school there. Mm -hmm. Poor kid. But Dr. Davis would tell him, like, "Okay, you're gonna have to work for this. Mm-hmm. You can. I'm gonna get, find you a job on campus somewhere. You might be breaking leaves or in, working in the cafeteria. Yep. As long as you make good grades, work your job, mm-hmm. you you'll get a degree from here. That's right. And that and that. So when you think about a community where you have that ethic from kindergarten all the way through a BA program, mm-hmm. you know, it it matters because then people don't really have an excuse for saying I don't have opportunity to do nah. this or I have an opportunity to do that. Because mm-hmm. we you were of, you were provisioned through the community. provision we provision. Mm. We and again, there were issues, there were problems. I mean, I remember my first, and this goes to my political orientation of things, the first time I remember any kind of pol- police brutality, mm. any kind of police misconduct was that the police in Pine Bluff had chased and shot a teenager in Ooh. the back and killed him how old were you i was point? like i couldn't have been more than about 11 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 11 or 12 years but you old. remember i remember this mm-hmm. and i remember hearing my parents talking about it mm-hmm. like trying to understand how an adult could shoot a kid yeah. like I, I mean it was like and i remember there was some organized protests around it uh. and i remember this the first time i went to any kind of I'll call it a protest. It was probably more like a vigil Mm -hmm. because it was quiet. It Mm -hmm. was like you had the black ministers in town speaking out about it my parents were not ultra political that way Mm. like they were school teachers Mm -hmm. and they felt like the way we work out our our future is through education Ah. we're gonna help kids be what they want to be i see right Mm -hmm. but i remember going to this rally it was at the civic center in downtown Mm -hmm. and i clearly remember sharpshooters on the top of the buildings trying to make sure that we didn't do something so this is like probably it's like 71 72 Mm -hmm. something like that I'm, and I I would have to go back and look at the history to know if Snick was still on campus. Mm-hmm. Probably was. Because I feel like the march got organized from the college to downtown.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And I and I can't remember my parents driving there and then us being part of the crowd. Mm-hmm. But I remember the feeling of having a police sniper on the roof of Ooh. a building and me feeling not safe. Of course. And I had up to that point in my life, I felt safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In most places. Yeah. Well, how, feel, why would you not? And this is in segregated movie theaters. Yep. We we had our own black people had our own park and a swimming pool. Yep. My first job was as a lifeguard at that pool. Mm-hmm. It was a center of mm-hmm. social activity for the black community. Yeah. A couple of buildings where people had parties. And again, it's not to say that in the middle of the night somebody didn't shoot up the place, but generally what would happen is like somebody have a little twenty two and shoot off and then everybody right. and everybody, right. everybody leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I don't remember like anybody getting shot and killed
0: violence no yeah, yeah i
1: mean we had an incident in my dad's school one year and my dad was a bit of a hero in that situation because he he helped calm people down with basically it was some beef going on between two groups of high school nah. uh, guys and one kids from one school came and they had a weapon mm-hmm. and they, they were basically there to scare people. And I think one kid got shot. I don't think he died. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was traumatic. And I remember that that day, yeah. you know, and how my dad had reacted to all of that as a, as a re- adult on yep. that campus and it was in the cafeteria. of course. But, um, but yeah, but I think by and large that, that kind of environment mm-hmm. and then being, you know, p- thrust into the political conversation, you know, hearing my parents talking about this and, and understanding that how threatening it was mm-hmm. to have somebody from the police department who I believe was supposed to protect and serve sure. not really protecting. Yeah, 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 yeah. They weren't protecting us. Yeah. They, that was didn't seem to be what they were trying to do.
0: Mm. How did you, outside of this incident of the young man being shot in the back and killed, did you have a sense of your parents' and or your community's politics growing up? Like, how did you make sense of it as a child? How did you understand
1: it? Um, I would say the most influential person was the minister of my church. Mm -hmm. Um, His name was Reverend S.B. Scott. Mm -hmm. And Reverend Scott, as I recall listening to sermons he always had like some social edge social justice edge Mm -hmm. to the sermon Mm -hmm. it was classic black preaching sure so we're using old testament stories about david and goliath to talk about society that we're we're you know we're we're thinking like passages like you know people who don't have a vision will perish you know like he was he, he seemed like he was always bringing that and i i remember Feeling like, oh, this is a person who has pride in our community. Uh This is a person who is going to speak up for us. Like he's, and he wasn't. He was, you know, I'm pretty sure Reverend Scott was self taught. I don't think he had a college degree and stuff. But he, but his understanding of how to make Christian theology uh, align Mm -hmm. with the aspirations of Black people was very powerful. Ah. And I think that uh, that in in my earliest recollections of that, I think it would be. I think that's that's the person I would say had the most impact on me. And it really wasn't until I got to college that I really became more explicitly uh, engaged in any kind of political activity. Ah, yeah.
0: okay. Did you, so, so before we get to college, am I understanding you had a uh, the uh, the conception of justice or what is right? Uh, you uh, was uh driven home by by the by the sermons that you were hearing at church where your pastor like connected the bible with like kind com- like modern day uh issues and and struggles yes is okay yeah but you yeah. weren't you were it wasn't any more specific or um precise than no nah, that's not the, how i want to say it wasn't any more uh specific than that it was just like we there are there are there are issues that my community or you know people who would be in my community if they lived here face um and there are kind of um biblical or religious imperatives to 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 fight them meet them struggle against them
1: yeah i would say so and i would and i would say the most direct thing would probably be his interpretation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, which was, like, which was that this was somebody who was upsetting the system. Ha! That it wasn't. Is, it wasn't
0: the 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 like saccharinely sweet, like personal piety, like God is an ATM mm-hmm. type of prosperity. This was no, oh no. Okay. Uh-uh.
1: This is before we even had a term prosperity ministry. uh because was nobody prospering that much? It was, <laughs> it was like I mean people were doing okay, but yeah. but no, no. It was. I think it was more of the. Um, Jesus the radical. Ah. Jesus in, in the in the terms of black liberation theology with James Cone yeah. and people who wrote about that in that period, mm-hmm. like in the 70s going into the eighties, it was like Jesus as like the most maybe the most profound part of that story was Jesus and the money changers. Yeah. Like Look running people off. This is not what church is supposed to be about. It's the way we interpret it. Yeah. Yeah. Like and we and we had seen versions of that. Mm-hmm. We had seen versions of black preachers who was all about you know, I'm gonna have the nicest style, suit and right. I'm gonna have the nicest car while people out here in the community got very little. Yeah, right. Struggles. So we didn't we didn't relate to that too ah, too well around you. how you're gonna be that different from everybody else. Uh-huh. You know, and so excuse me. I think, yeah, with Dervin Scott, I think it was more of that. And then and then the Sundays I would go to my dad's church, mm-hmm. Reverend uh Nolan, this minister was more I think he was college trained, so he was a little bit more polished in terms of his analysis Mm -hmm. but it was the same Ah, okay it was the same same spirit same spirit of that you know and i think that the that those of us who are fortunate enough to have those kind of ministers Mm -hmm. who understood the connection between you know this idea of treating your neighbor as yourself Mm -hmm. um you know helping the poor feeding the hungry clothing the naked you know that that all that fundamental christian belief system Mm -hmm. and in my and, and now as an adult what I believe to be a fundamental African perspective yes. on the world uh-huh. um that was it was very important in in my own sort of formative years of, of trying to figure out right and wrong mm-hmm. trying to figure out what what is good in a society what needs to be fixed ah
0: okay so that so your church environment that that was the fertile ground up into which I guess further seeds were planted as you as you uh, went to college and continued to maturate? Is mm-hmm. that
1: correct? Okay. I would say so. Okay. And the only other thing I would add to it, as we're as we're talking about this, is the ethic of service. Ah. Like what you do for other people is more important than what you do for yourself. Yeah, like that piece, and I got that in. I mean, in spades. Because yeah, of course. There was there was always stuff <laughs> we were volunteering, being volunteered for. That's right. Um, you know, it was never a moment. I mean, the the service projects we did as Cub Scouts. The service projects we did as Boy Scouts. The service projects we did, uh, I was part of something called the March of Dimes Clown Club. And mm. we we learned clowning arts and then we would go to hospitals and entertain oh. kids in hospitals. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned to juggle. I had my own little get up. You know? <laughs> um, and and then only later in life I realized some people are actually afraid of clowns. Like that, <laughs> that white makeup, that bozo the clown kind of look. That's like, yeah. Um, Alright, that's not for but, everybody. <laughs> but all of the The things around serving other people, Mm -hmm. you know, that's that that's almost like a natural for me because that was I I watch people in my community do that selflessly all the time, all the time.
0: Yep. When it was time for you to go off to school, what was either your dream for yourself or your like? family's dream for you like were you supposed to be the blank of the family you know were you supposed to be the the family's first lawyer or or doctor or you know you supposed to be the senator of Arkansas or you know what
1: what was the yeah. it was you, it's, I, nobody's ever asked me this I, I think it was it was an expectation that I was going to do something to contribute to the forward progress of the world okay i mean that's kind of lofty to say it that way no, but-, but it's like but whatever you choose mm-hmm. to do with yourself you need to do that so when i graduated from high school i was pre-med everybody thought i was gonna be a doctor whoa okay i was gonna be a doctor and so the medical what was it called the medical society in high school gave me a little scholarship um all these folks and i i felt a little bad three <laughs> years later when i was like I'm not going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a lawyer, <laughs> but I'm not giving you the money back. Yeah. Right? I felt a little bad about it, right? Uh-huh. But, um, but mostly I think it was, it was to find something useful mm-hmm. to do in life, uh-huh. to be able to take care of oneself. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only real messaging my parents had was like, you got choices. So you are going off to college. You could have chosen military. You could have chosen to get a job. But you're going to choose something. Yeah. You don't get to just be. No, here. you ain't about to just be you ain't in going to house. Just hang out. You're not, you're not having a gap year. <laughs> no, no, no. And there, there was, was no, no such thing. <laughs> thing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. There was no such thing as a gap year. Yeah, like no. Yeah, no, no. Oh, you mean a gap where you don't get to eat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that part. And so it was that. But it was also, and this is probably as important as anything for me. It was also. You represent us. Uh, that's right. So don't get out of here. Acting a fool. Acting a fool. Hey, and burning bridges. And people embarrassing us. Yeah. And, you know, and this will be the second moment I probably get teary. But I remember there was a woman in my church. Mm-hmm. And, and like, so we had that at like every black church at that time. And maybe some of this still happens where when your college graduates are about to go off yeah. and see, we only we can only name two or three people that went off to college. Mm-hmm. Most people stayed at home. Sure, they went sure. to school right there yeah. at UAPB, right? And there was about three of us who were going out we were leaving home, leaving town mm-hmm. to go off to college. And and I remember there was a, a couple of young people who Grew up in Pine Bluff, grew up in that church, and they would come home periodically. Mm-hmm. And they would always get brought up to the front of the church and That's say, right. Well, you know, so, uh, William, can you say something to the people? Because, you know, you're out there in the big city college <laughs> and and say something to the people. Yeah. And so they'd get up and tell a little story about Sub, right? And so, and I ended up having to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> when, I, when I would go back home mm-hmm. periodically. And, but this woman, when the service was over, she called me over mm-hmm. and she says, You know how much we love you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> And you know that you're taking us with you mm. when you go up there to Chicago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not out of a movie, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we try to narrate, we try to dramatize this, but this is the stuff that used to happen. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. so she reaches down in her purse mm-hmm. and she pulls out what I call a church lady handkerchief. <laughs> this real frilly handkerchief that looked like you would never use on your nose or anything, because <laughs> it just was it was too frilly and lacy and yeah, stuff. Yeah. and it was tied up in like in a little bundle. Mm-hmm. And it was full of coins, uh, and she handed it to me, and she said, "This is your just in case money, mm-hmm. just in case you need to have a sandwich and mm-hmm. you can't have one, or just in case you need car fare, mm-hmm. or just in case you need to make a call mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. This is this is for you to take with you." Mm-hmm. And I and I I like that was mm-hmm. one of the most special things that ever happened to me because I know it was out of love. That's right. I know it was out of her concern. Hmm. I know she was proud of me.
0: That's right, and she planned that money to put those coins away. Yeah. That wasn't she? Didn't just yeah. run to the no. down to the bank on Friday mm-hmm. before it closed. She been so, putting that money away for a while.
1: Yeah, so that was that's how I left home. Ah, uh, with love, with with a, a bag of coins, love and iron, and because <laughs> my mom was like, "You go iron your clothes, <laughs> You get up there. <laughs> you're not gonna be walking around wrinkled." And I was like. I mean again, order in my household. Every Saturday laundry's being done and every Saturday you had to iron your clothes for the next week. Yeah, you right. wouldn't iron your clothes on Monday morning, no. Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. You was and we ironed pillowcases. Mm. Starched <laughs> pillowcases. With old school starch where they soak the starch in in a in a in a tub. big bowl or a mm-hmm. tub and then put it in the refrigerator for a day and yeah. then you iron it. <laughs> See? A lot of people don't know none of this. They like, no, we hey. mean spray starch. We ain't even using that no more. I can't remember the last time somebody like starched the shirt, yeah. right? Let's take your stuff to the cleaners. Anyway, yeah. so we're yes. talking
0: to a non-ironer. Yeah, so, but yes. I know what you mean. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we went.
1: Yeah. So I went off to college, like ready, ready for the world. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, ready for at least ready for school. Um, Where'd you go? I went to Northwestern. Oh, okay.
0: Why did yeah. you choose there?
1: Um, because it wasn't in Pine Bluff.
0: Cause, so you wanted uh, to get away from because oh, you absolutely. wanted to lose your mind a little bit
1: why oh, absolutely because it was like <laughs> i saw what happens when you stay there it's great mm-hmm. but you don't but you don't get to see the world ah. you know not really mm-hmm. and then my mother's generation my mom had uh, four siblings mm-hmm. and all of her siblings moved away from pine bluff mm-hmm. when they were young adults mm-hmm. for looking for opportunities and sure. so my aunt lived in washington dc then columbia maryland Mm -hmm. another aunt lived in akron ohio uncle in denver another uncle in texas the auntie in atlanta Mm -hmm. ultimately and so we had been in chicago in atlanta and and because we would go visit them during the summers Mm -hmm. i would go to dc or my cousins would come to pine Bluff from dc maryland areas Mm -hmm. um but those but but for me going to school away meant that I have the possibilities of living someplace else,
0: ah, and that's what you wanted,
1: and that's what I wanted to do. Oh, yeah, okay. I didn't have these warm fuzzy feelings about pineapple when I was growing up. Mm-mm. I was a kid. Yeah, Like yeah, when yeah. you're a kid, you bored. Yeah, ain't nothing to do. <laughs> like there's one bowling alley, there's one skating rink, and there's one movie theater, uh-huh. and it was like or two actually, and one of them we didn't even go to because it was that segregated. Mm. We just was like, nope, we're good. Oh dear. But no, I had, and then because I had been able to travel a little bit as a kid, you know, on family trips, we would drive to these places. I would see the countryside. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was about 13, I convinced my mom to let me go visit my Aunt uh, Ida in Akron, Ohio and her kids, like on the on a Greyhound bus by myself. Mm. And that was a big that adventure. That was a big deal, yeah. That's like Ferris Bueller has a day off. <laughs> On steroids, <laughs> right? You it's know, so like what? I get to go. I'm gonna be on a bus. And I'm packing <laughs> my lunch, and you know, and that. So, so when I went to visit schools, and I went to Chicago to visit Northwestern. You didn't it, want to go to an HBCU at all,
0: like you didn't want to go to Howard. You didn't want to go to Morehouse. You didn't want to it's, go to, it's, it's so to, go to
1: fam because I grew up in an HBCU town yeah, like that, that didn't seem like a thing. Hmm. Now and then also because and this is just how kids are. Mine, mine, included. If your parents suggest you to do something, what do you do? The opposite. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. my
1: dad really wanted me to go to Morehouse. Uh uh-huh. I mean, he really, really, really wanted me to go to Morehouse, uh-huh. but he wasn't going to force me to go to Morehouse. Sure. And so, but his
0: insistence was like, no, I don't yeah, want
1: to do it. I say, if you want it that bad, it must not be fun.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and little did I know
0: <laughs> that would
1: have been a hoop, yeah, like oh, being in, in Atlanta.
0: Yeah, during that time. Oh
1: <laughs> man. Like, and this is pre-freaknik. Yeah. So, yeah. So no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have any real desire to go to HBCU. I okay. didn't consider Howard. Mm-mm. And it's interesting how kids are different. Like, so I went to Northwestern. My younger sister went to Howard. Oh, okay. And because she said later in life, I found this out. She said that she always wanted to go to Howard mm-hmm. for undergrad, mm-hmm. and she always wanted to go to Harvard for law school, and oh. she did. Oh,
2: okay. All right. She
1: was there when this guy Barack. Obama he was like there around the same time <laughs> nice. Yeah, she was like a year behind him I think oh, wow. in law school so mm-hmm. but all that to say that my thing was like to to have this big adventure so when I get to Chicago for the visit mm-hmm. I was like oh this yeah mm-hmm. oh you were like oh, this yeah. you were like this is my scene oh yeah yeah black city yeah even though Evanston is you know it's Outside. like Evanston is to Chicago as Berkeley is to Oakland. So yep. it's like yep. it's right there. Mm-hmm. And so and public transit system. Yep. So you get on L, you mean downtown Chicago in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like it was a big campus, too, because, mm-hmm. you know, HBC, University of Arkansas Pine Bluff campus is small yeah. by comparison. This is a huge campus is on the lake. Mm-hmm. I think I know. I visited when the weather was nice. You had to. I didn't visit during the winter because if I had visited in the winter, I might have been in Atlanta. <laughs> I might have been in a different place. That's right. You know, but, um, but it was, it was a thing. And mm-hmm. one of the things, again, black community that takes care of you. My mom had a friend who was a guidance counselor on the university campus. She offered to go through my college admissions materials with Mm. me Mm -hmm. i had this big bag i was a good student so i had a big bag of stuff from all over the country Mm -hmm. and we're going through it and she's like "Have you thought about northwestern i was like i don't don't really know know nothing about it i knew the big name schools like harvard's and i might have had some consciousness of stanford west coast stuff but um but she saw it, and she was like oh and then she pulls it out she's like and they're offering you money Oh. It's like you. What do you mean? You don't know? <laughs> you ain't thought about this? You, well, we go start thinking about this. Yeah,
0: that's right. Together. Gregory
1: and so, um, Dr. Bobby Irvin's was her name. Dr. Irvin's went through that materials with me, and then we narrowed it down to Emory, mm-hmm. Atlanta, Atlanta. Um, the two Northwestern and University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. I think my fallback school was University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, ah. the main you know main yeah. campus, and I might have had Washington University in St. Louis might mm-hmm. have been on there. Um, but but when she told me about this, and then she said, "Well, you know, Sheila Phillips and Robin went to Northwestern." Mm-hmm. I was like, "No." Nah. <laughs> and so Rob, the Phillips family, the Gordon family, and, and the Phillips girls were actually our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And but they were like several years older than me, so mm-hmm. I didn't know where right, they went, went to keeping school. Keeping up with them, When keeping up with them. Um, but when when she said, you know, they went there, I said, "Oh." And she said, "You know, she should talk to them and see what they what kind of experience they're having." Mm-hmm. It didn't hurt that the Phillips sisters were gorgeous. Ah, okay. That's so I was all like, if they went there. <laughs> there's probably some other gorgeous black women there, <laughs> and maybe who knows? Right. I was like, because you know, I was You're six, seventeen man. years old. Yeah, so I'm yeah. like, or you know, or eighteen, whatever it was. I, and I was just. So all the th- things that you're going through your head around school choices. Right. It's like, is it going to be fun? Right. Are there going to be people there that look like me? Yeah. And all that. And so that's kind of how to distribute me. It was a really good decision. Oh, um, cool. I had a great experience in Northwestern. Um, made a lot of good friends. Got involved in campus politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes to, you know, the the sort of my political origin story, so to speak. What, what was it? Anti-apartheid. Movement
0: ah, up. why did that? Why was that? Why did that light you up? Why did you decide that this oh, is where I need to get involved?
1: Because one, it was, I could see almost just immediately the parallels between apartheid South Africa and the segregated South. Hey, uh-huh. I was like, oh, this is the same thing, except this is Africa. Huh. And then I had this huge curiosity mm-hmm. about Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the the thing that that really... Politicize me. Mm-hmm. It was a film called *The Last Grave at Dembaza*, mm. and this film was about the Bantu stands and like the dire conditions mm. that were faced there, and particularly with the children mm-hmm. when their fathers were off in these work camps, their yep. mothers were trying to eke out a living on this barren land. And the film itself was done in this very stark way, mm. and it was like it was a documentary film. Yeah. And I remember it was like some organization on campus sponsored a showing of the film. Mm-hmm. And then they had a conversation about apartheid because we had a professor on campus who was a South African exile. His name uh-huh. was uh, Professor Dennis Brutus. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Brutus was this amazing poet. He kind of looked like Frederick Douglass. He big <laughs> hair mm-hmm. and beard and stuff. And he just, and he spoke very eloquently. Um, you know, you, you could take classes from Dr. Brutus, but he he made the apartheid experience real in what way he cuz he started describing how he grew up ah. he started describing who Steve Biko was uh-huh. who Nelson and Winnie Mandela were mm-hmm. who um you know all of that ANC leadership yeah. and the sacrifices they were making in that moment like yeah. Nelson Mandela had been in jail for like 15 years by then ah you know and so these are the people
0: had you not heard a lot about the apartheid state in South Africa before getting to college, and or and and so hearing about this anew was like whoa, like just yes, just blew your mind. It blew my mind. Okay. I had no idea because you had no idea because you thought that that was a relic of a time past. You you what? Why I just did it... had no
1: idea, uh-huh. and I would. It's, it's interesting we're saying it this way. I had no idea because I had no idea of Africa. Ah, at all. I I had just somehow Africa's this real mystical far away mm-hmm. place in our history. And mm-hmm. I don't really have anything. Con- I'm not connected to that. Ah. Like nobody had ever said to me, really, what's the connection between black people here and black people there? Ah. Ah. Like, and in, and in school, this is now, this is now, maybe it have been different. Had I continued through from sixth grade through high school in all black schools, mm-hmm. but I didn't. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So now I got white teachers trying to teach world history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like how we spent a bunch of time on Europe, mm-hmm. we spent a bunch of time on North America and the colonists and their role in world history and American history. Mm-hmm. And then by the time we get to South America, Africa, China, yeah. we, we're the end of school year. We're yep. gonna spend a week <laughs> on Africa. We're <laughs> gonna spend a week on China. We're yeah. gonna spend a week on South America, That's and right. you're gonna end up not knowing much of nothing. <laughs> That's right. Right. And so I didn't. I just didn't have I um, I didn't have a good sense of it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so part of what um, happened was that it felt very personal to me ah. when I saw that film mm-hmm. I knew Dr. Brut- I met Dr. you know uh, Dennis Brutus I also mm-hmm. was part of the and then became part of the black student alliance on campus it was mm-hmm. called FMO for members only ah. and that was where I really got my political chops began to get sharpened because because we were doing actions on campus
0: anti-apartheid actions Mm -hmm. you weren't you weren't afraid of uh of the potential blowback of that i presume i presume and tell me if i'm completely off base i presume that the uh the the opposition to any anti-apartheid uh consciousness and or uh political organizing mirrors maybe not exactly but mirrors like the the anti-bds movement that's going on now with uh like uh with israel you know boycott divestment sanctions was are they were they similar or was it or was the the potential um consequences of being in an anti-apartheid movement were they not so felt so acutely or the specter yeah. of uh, yeah, I retribution think, wasn't so
1: high you didn't feel it in the same way ah, okay. because and this again is toward the latter half of that movement in this country because uh-huh. now by now you've got artists boycotting ah. you know you've got uh, Ron Dellums and others locking themselves to the door of the South African embassy in DC mm-hmm. you've got um, well one of the things was I'm now starting to take classes in black studies where this is being talked about mm-hmm. I'm also reading more books about Africa and the history of Africa. One of the most important books that I read at that time was by Steve Biko because mm-hmm. he wrote a book called "I Write What I Like." Mm-hmm. and And I and then when I learned about how he died, I was like, "Uh-uh, mm. uh-uh." He was a student leader. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, they drug, they put him in the back of a truck and drove for 400 miles with no. He had no clothes on. I mean, mm-hmm. how they killed Steve Biko? I was just savage. Oh, yeah. Uh-uh. Nope. Cause <laughs> that felt too much that felt too close. Yeah. I was like, uh uh-uh. uh. And then and then <laughs> part of what happened too was that um black student organizers we as as black student organizers, we wanted to bring Gil Scott Heron to hey, campus. Uh-huh. And he had been to campus once before, but we wanted to bring him back for a fundraiser mm-hmm. for the anti apartheid work mm-hmm. that was happening. And the way it was set up at the time was that our the black student association's budget had to be presented to and approved by mm. ASG, the Associated Student Government, the white students. Yeah. And so here it is: we having to go ask white students Ooh. to give us money uh-huh. to bring Gil Scott to campus, mm. and when they 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 didn't even say no, they just questioned it. Um. And we say, "Oh no, uh-uh, you don't get to question this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just need to write a check. That's right. That's that's all we're that doing needs to be. This. And and as a matter of fact, we shouldn't have to come to y'all for our budget. Yeah. So we just we organized a, a move on the provost oh. where we showed up at the provost's office we'd ask for meetings they didn't want to meet with us so we basically did a demonstration and we put a hundred students in his office mm. and a whole, about 200 more outside mm. we disrupted the campus for a solid week oh. we shut the libraries down nice. we we I, we did some stuff I can't tell you about okay. but That's we sweet. shut it down yeah, yeah. and 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 this is the the one the one regret. If there's anybody out there who's listening to this who was there who knows about this, the one regret uh-huh. was that somebody came up with this idea that the way we shut we get the students the white students' attention because they weren't trying to they weren't trying to hear none of this. Mm. And we said, well, tell you what we're gonna shut the library down." But mm. well, what do we do? We we picked the Melville Herskovitz collection oh. at the library. The Melville Herskovitz collection is the One of the most important collections of African studies in the world. Mm. Mel Herskis was a sociologist who started researching the African survivals between the continent and Mm -hmm. the diaspora. Mm -hmm. That's our stuff. Yeah. So we, so the the thing, the way we did this was we went, we checked out as many books as we could check out Mm -hmm. over a course of three or four days. Mm -hmm. And then we brought all of them back on a Sunday night. Mm -hmm it shut the library down. They couldn't figure out how to be shelved the books and all this. Now, and this is a library mostly used by graduate students and mostly used by graduate students from where? Africa. That's how short-sighted we were. So I, to this day, I'm apologizing to my brothers and sisters from the continent who might have been PhD students who couldn't get their books for that week. But that's you know right. kind of things you do when you're not really thinking fully yeah. about it. If we were really thinking, we'd have done the general collection. Yeah, we would. You know, but anyway. So we <laughs> won that battle though, mm-hmm. and they and from that point on, the university de- fund, um, directed. So, what I'm saying, directly funded mm-hmm. black student. Oh, activities nice. Stuff.
0: Okay, because of the work that your group because did. of the, the protest that we put up. Oh, yeah. nice. what year what that yeah. This would have been.
1: 79 I think the school year 79 80. Ah okay.
0: That yeah. recent. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah yeah Interesting. yeah. Well how were you starting to understand the world at this point? I understand that your the aperture of uh of your knowledge of Africa and African struggles was being Opened uh, at this time as a result of uh, the professor on campus, the the anti-apartheid movement, your 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 new insights into the history of Africa and its peoples wherever they are. Um, but so, how do you think you understood or were starting to understand the world at that point in college?
1: Yeah, I think it was I had gone up to a point of understanding our history in this country because I think we're constantly learning more about our history here. Um, taking studies taking classes in the black studies department um but then the, the game changer mm-hmm. was my between my junior and senior year of college i went to africa for the first time where i went to kenya ah. and i was there for six weeks uh-huh. it was an urban geography field study maybe eight weeks somebody just corrected me one of my friends who lives here who was on that trip mm-hmm. i think she said eight weeks but anyway I went to kenya it was an urban geography field study we lived with different families along the way, as well as camping in the game reserves. Mm-hmm. So we lived with a family of uh, coffee farmers, uh-huh. and we were, we were outside we were, of Nairobi. Yeah, yeah. in the Machacos district, I ah. think in the Highlands. Mm-hmm. And so we, and because it was an urban geography field study, we moved around a lot. Uh-huh. So we got a chance to see pretty much every part of the country except the extreme north. East corner, which was on the border of Somalia, and there was some conflicts going on, so we couldn't go that far north. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it was Somalia, and so the uh, you know we lived with, um, and we we were um, broken up into groups of two, mm-hmm. and so it was a group of twenty eight kids. Me and Serlene Grant were the only two black people on this trip, mm-hmm. and so it was all these like white kids Mzungu. in Africa, uh-huh. and we were like, it was great because. <laughs> We were like in such a minority on Northwestern's campus. Yeah. A a handful of black students on Northwestern's campus mm-hmm. compared to the total student population. Sure. And so I remember one day we were we were on a it was like 3 weeks so into the trip. We're a lot of times we're on the back of this big truck, you know, the lorry and mm-hmm. and sitting in these two rows uh and so out of nowhere this little white girl has like a little meltdown oh, and girl. she says Just where are all the white people? And we was like, You in Africa. Girl. You in Kenya. (laughs) That's where the the white people are in Europe (laughs) and America. There's a few white people here, but mostly they're not here. And so it was like, and so that was a priceless moment for me and Celine (laughs) because we look at each other like, Hmm.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, because you know that's how we feel in most classes on yeah, north campus. that's right you would be in a, a biology section with 300 kids and you look around and you might see six other black kids maybe you yeah. know and it's like we feel like this every day yeah so welcome to our world
0: yeah welcome
1: and so and that was a good trip for those kids they needed to see something course. something different so but what did that trip do for you oh that trip for me was like if you ever want to think about like it, it was like, it wasn't like coming to America. It was the opposite of coming to America. It was like coming to Africa, <laughs> like without the, you know, all the pompous circumstances yeah, like sure. that. But it was that way because as a 19, or 20 year old, mm-hmm. maybe I was 21. I just turned 21, I think. Um, and I wanted to be on that trip. I wasn't going to let any of these white kids outdo me of in course. anything. I'm going to be the first to do this. I'm going to be the first to do that. So when we went to Mount Kenya, mm-hmm. and it's like a three-day process to go up the mountain, I'm going to be the first at every marker. I'm going to be the first. <laughs> yeah. like, y'all better come on. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be. I remember there was a, it's almost like this, this image over here from um, uh, where there was, we were going up a, a butte mm-hmm. in the middle of the savannah. And it was with a group of folks from the Sambura people, their cousins of the Maasai, mm-hmm. and they herd cattle. And then during the season, when the seasons change, they herd their cattle up this butte to get to uh, water and where they can graze mm-hmm. for a few months at a time. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of, our timing was such that we were going up this butte and hanging out with this community that was this on, on top of this mountain, basically. And there was this young white girl who was like, we get hour or two into what was probably a three and a half hour walk up this up this mountain mm-hmm. and she was like i can't do it and then the thing was if she couldn't do it and we had to go back we all had to go back I was, uh-huh. and i was like oh no you you're doing this right and i became her coach up the mountain <laughs> i was like no step to the left <laughs> step over that step i remember i was behind her too and i was at some point like pushing her yeah. like you're going because yeah. if you don't do this i can't do this right and i'm, so, going, so, to do and I'm going to do this so best believe <laughs> right we're gonna figure this out uh-huh. and so the most important most formative aspect of this trip was with uh, a kid named musio rubin mm-hmm. and he was in the machacos district he wanted to introduce me to his grandmother mm-hmm. and she lived out away from the little part of the, the area where he lived. Mm-hmm. And so we get on this bicycle and I'm sitting on the seat and he's peddling. And then I would, we would change positions and all up and up, up and down the road, people were asking him in, I think he was Kikuya. People were asking him, who is this guy with you? Mm-hmm. And then somebody said to Bob. Mm-hmm. And I was like, after having seen Roots, I was like, mm, Two Bob is like white people. I am not white. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's all I knew. That's You're all right. my reference point, right? <laughs>
1: and he said, no, no, no. And somebody explained this to me. I think he might have explained it later, but Tubob Bob was a term they used for any... Westerner. Westerner. Yeah. Anybody who wasn't from there. Yeah. You could be black, white, brown, didn't matter. Yeah. But you, and, and the term came from when the during the colonial period when the British were there, the children would often run up to a a white you know colonist and say give me two shillings Mm -hmm. and two shillings is two bob Ah, so it's short for two shillings right and so they just was like it was about you just not from here
0: right and you don't take it don't take it no way yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs)
1: right you must have money take it because you got on nice sneakers right nothing else right (laughs) and so we get to his grandmother's house she doesn't speak any english Mm -hmm. um but she's basically quizzing him and she's just about staring at me she's like so make me understand who he is yeah, yeah, yeah. he he looks like us he's a little lighter complexion mm-hmm. but he basically looks like us yeah but where is he from yeah and so musio is trying to explain to her he's using terms like black american mm-hmm. it's, that, not that com- it's not yeah, it it's not it's not computing he's like and finally he said something like he's from the other side of the water ah and she that registered mm-hmm. and she was like, oh, sit down. And now she goes into Ooh. we having lunch mode because mm-hmm. now we about to we about to have a conversation. Yeah, we're about right? to get into it. Yeah. She she goes out, did something I saw my grandmother do a few times, which is goes out in the yard, gets a chicken, mm-hmm. brings the chicken to the neck. Yep. Feathered it and start cooking mm-hmm. and cooked this amazing chicken stew. Yep. And so as we're eating. She she picks up this conversation. So mm-hmm. tell me again, she he says. Other side of the water. Mm-hmm. She pulls close to me, and she she starts holding my hand,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and she says to him, "Tell him that today he made my life complete." Ha! And I was like,
0: "What does that mean?" What does that mean? Mm-hmm.
1: And and he said, "Because this is my grandmother, and she was a she was an older grandmother, and mm-hmm. she said." He said, what she said was, when I was a little girl, people disappeared from our communities. Mm. And even though this is East Africa, right? Because there was other slave trade, just Saharan slave trade, right? With Arabs. She says, I always ask my grandmother Mm -hmm. what happened to these people. Mm -hmm. Because these are our family. Yeah, where'd they go? Where'd they go? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like, what happened to them? Mm -hmm. Did they survive? Mm -hmm. Did they come back didn't she says you came back
0: Mm, you were her door she was your door of no return or you were hers yeah Mm.
1: yeah she said you came back Mm. and and i and for me that moment was that moment where i felt at home Uh uh-huh like it's it's the most at home i felt Mm -hmm. in my in out all the experiences i've had in my life that's that's one of the ones i can say i felt like i belonged there Ah. And that, and she was still holding my hand. Mm-hmm. And the only English that I recall her speaking, she she was holding my hand and she was rubbing my hand. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Same, same." Oh. And she rubbed her. And she says, she says, she says, same, same. Mm-hmm. For a, a young person mm-hmm. who had been told that people in, on the kind that don't like you, mm-hmm. they don't see you as family. Yeah. They, all You're those different. things we yeah. tell ourselves, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, about our cousins. And what our cousins say about us, and vice versa. Uh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. um, and then she she went in her. She, this is in a hut, basically. Yeah. Mean, she went in her um, in her bedroom and brought two items out, mm-hmm. and it, one was a uh, woven basket. It was a a women's basket. The mm-hmm. basket, by the time you see them, they go to the market and they'll yeah. put the strap around the head and carry the load. Yeah, yeah, on the back. And then, and then it was an orange uh, crocheted blanket. Mm-hmm. And she says, "I want you to take this to your mother." Hmm. And you tell her that her Kikuya sister said hello, oh. and that she should come see us sometime. Uh-huh. So I took these items to my mother. Yeah, and my mother prized those yeah. until she passed. When I when my mom passed, and I started looking around the house, and that 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 orange blanket was still in that basket. Yeah, I
0: know it was. You uh-huh. know, and
1: I have it here somewhere. It's, yeah. it's upstairs. Yeah, and so that. That experience of feeling welcomed and whole and loved by somebody who didn't know me, but somebody who had been praying to see me.
0: Ah, without even knowing your name.
1: Without even knowing my name. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, I've, I've been to Africa a bunch of times. Yep. And I, I feel like anybody who identifies as a black person, whether you live in, in the U.S., Canada, the Caribbean, Europe. Brazil, where Europe, wherever you live. Mm-hmm. You need to take a trip to Africa at least yeah, once yeah. in your life. That's right. The same way my Muslim friends make Hajj, Hajj they, yep. they make pilgrimage at least once in your life. Yep. You got to see and feel and touch and yep. understand the immense diversity of the continent yep. and the ties right. that still bind. And the ties that still bind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: wrong for patting myself on the back for getting him to tear up thrice perhaps (laughs) tune in for part two when greg moves to the bay when things were getting a little wild as the post-radical era of the 60s was mixing with the explosive crack era of the 80s oh boy uh you can tune into part two now over on patreon at patreon.com slash what's left to do that's p-a-t r-e-o-n dot com slash what's left to do if you'd like to just make a donation to support this work you can go to what's left to do dot com slash support
3: and leave us a little love
0: offering okay see you over on Patreon for part two